have your Bible or your Southbridge app. That's where we're going to be. Mark chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 12. Let me pray before we do that. Father, thank you that we get to gather together. Thank you that we get to call upon your name. Thank you that we can sing your praises on behalf of everybody who's trusted your son as Savior. I thank you for our salvation. For those who don't know that yet, God, I pray you give them that today. And uh, God, will your spirit just be so present that we would sense your presence, that we'd know that you're here and that you'd meet with us and transform us through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're Mark, and uh, like I said, Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. If you've been with us through the series, you know what's been happening. We're talking about who is this Jesus, but if you haven't been with us, we start at the beginning of the year looking at Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. In Mark chapter 1 verse 1, it says that this is the story, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, which then makes you ask the question, who's Jesus? And then in chapter 1, what you see is, well, he's a guy who's worthy to leave everything and go follow him. No strings attached, nothing else attached to on this earth, but I want him, just like Peter did and Andrew did and James and John. And then you see he's got an authority unlike anybody else. He casts out a demon so he can give us freedom from any bondage that we have in our lives. And then you see that he can heal diseases as he goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house and heals diseases. And then in verse 34 of chapter 1, people from all over town are showing up at this house. He starts healing a bunch of diseases. And then our passage last week, where what we see is that he puts a love without limits on display as this guy that's a total, the biggest outcast you can imagine, a leper. He's not even allowed, the Bible even says, you have to live alone outside the camp, outside the town. He's not allowed, anybody he comes into contact with, he's supposed to yell, unclean, unclean. He comes to Jesus. Why? Because the love without limits is attractive. And not only is it attractive, but it's unrestricted. We see Jesus violates the rabbinical rules of the day and touches this guy. And we see that he puts love into action, which is what we were talking about last week. And if you weren't with us last week, what we did is it was Valentine's Day. I don't know if you remember that or not. Maybe that's why you weren't with us. You were out on a, a date or something. You're trying to demonstrate love. We had these little cards in every cup holder that looked like Valentine's Day cards. But they weren't. They were postcards. And at the end of the service, we had people write down, how is it you're going to put love without limits into action? And, and many of us, were not there. We don't love without limits. But we wanted to grow in that. And so people wrote things down like what you saw on the screen. And our elders prayed through all those. And our staff members, we prayed through all those cards. And some of them were hard to read. And some of them were encouraging, people sharing their faith. But a common theme was that people were going to forgive. And that's what Jesus does in the passage this week. Is he shows us that love without limits forgives. And that's what the message is about today. That a love without limits forgives. And it really flows out of last week's passage. And so last week, if you remember this leper, he's the outcast at the beginning of the passage. But do you remember what happens at the end of the passage? I'm just going to read to you in Mark chapter 1 and verse 45. It's the last verse of chapter 1. And Jesus has cleansed this leper. The leper came to him and said, if you're willing, make me clean. Jesus says, I'm willing, be clean. Then he says, go be cleansed. This is interesting. Leprosy has never talked about being healed in the Bible. It's talked about being cleansed. It's a picture of sin. After he cleanses the leper, he tells him, don't go tell anybody. Verse 45 says this. Instead, he went out and he told everybody. He began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. And what we see is that Jesus switched spots with this guy. At the beginning of the passage, that guy's the outcast. He can't come into the town. Jesus is in the town. The guy comes to him. At the end of the passage, he goes out and he starts telling everybody, now Jesus has to stay out in lonely places. He switched spots with the leper just as he switched spots with you. He left heaven. He came to earth so that when we leave earth, we can go to heaven. He became sin, even though he didn't do any sin, so that we could then become the righteousness of God. He took on the wrath of God so that we could experience the grace of God. He switched spots with you. 
But it happened in his life. He gets outcast. He has to be on the outside. And he was in Galilee at the time. He goes out in these desert areas. And then a few days later, he sneaks into this town, Capernaum. He was in Galilee. Now he's going back to where he was at the beginning of Mark, Capernaum. Now he's in a house, though. He's not in just a, a synagogue. He's in the same house, probably Simon Peter's house or Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. And look what happens. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, as he puts love on display through forgiveness. A few days later, after the leprosy encounter, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, so he goes into another town, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left. There was no video venue then either. Not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. The word for word there is that he's preaching the gospel. He's telling them about salvation through faith. You have to have faith and then he'll forgive your sins. So that's what he's preaching. That's the message. And while that's happening, verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralytic, a guy who couldn't walk, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the man, the mat, the paralyzed man was lying on. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Notice what happens next. No one in the crowd yells, What about his legs? It's obvious what the problem is. Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. And look at the next verse, verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were still sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. He's, he's saying irreverent things about He's claiming to be God. And they say this, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. Only God can forgive sins. They're wrong about Jesus, though. They don't think he's God. Some false religions, like Jehovah's Witnesses, teach that the New Testament never says that Jesus was God. Here, Jesus is claiming to be God in this passage. Look at what he does. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? <laughs> That'd mess somebody up, wouldn't it? Like, you're thinking bad stuff about someone, and he says, why are you thinking that? What do you mean, what am I thinking? Like, you... And then Jesus says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know, not that he has power to heal this man's legs. What's he pointing on this passage? He's not teaching about this healing of this man. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The whole passage is about forgiveness. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Verse 12 is key. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Here the miracle is, not that this guy walks out of this room. The miracle is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That means he can forgive yours. I've preached this passage before. I remember when I came to it, I thought, what am I going to say that I've never seen? And I started to study the passage and I thought, how did I never see this before? Did you see the theme that was going through here? Not just the forgiveness. The passage is clearly about forgiveness. But do you see that Jesus is showing us that he's making unseen things seen? One of the keys when you study the Bible is to look and see what is the author emphasizing. Because you can read it and just be like, God, you know, make my liver quiver and feel good about this passage or whatever. And, uh, but that's not the point. The point, the Bible is never going to tell you what it's not and what it didn't originally say. So it doesn't mean what the author didn't mean. And so what did the author mean? What did Mark mean when he wrote this down? So what's he emphasizing? Well, you go and you see throughout this passage, he's emphasizing the unseen becoming seen, the invisible becoming visible. Go back to verse 5 if you have a copy of the scripture. And do you notice that it says that Jesus saw, you can underline that if you write in your Bible, if you have an app, maybe you can highlight that. He saw their faith. How do you see faith? I thought faith was invisible. And then conceptually, you see what happens in verses 6 through 8. These guys are thinking stuff, and Jesus can see it. He can't see thoughts. How does he know what they're thinking? And then you go down to verse 12, 
And he tells him too, just before that, uh, that, so that you know that I can forgive sins, which is something you can't see. He tells the guy to get, I'm going to do a demonstration, so that you, something you can see. But then look at what they say in verse 12. He got up, what? In full view of them all. He saw their faith. And now this is happening in full view of them all. And then what do they say? The last phrase in verse 12. We've never seen, so if you underline in your Bible, underline that, never seen anything like this. What he's doing is he's making the unseen seen. Think about how many things in life we can't see. And I'm not even talking about, like, not forgetting the spiritual. Like, forget, you know, the battles of principalities and angels and all that stuff that's happening. I'm not even talking about that. Just like molecule, like stuff that's too small to see. Stuff that we're oblivious to. Things that we just don't know. Or think about how you see things different now as a result of technology or different things that have happened. I had a friend who was really into physics share with me this week. He said the most significant thing that's happened in the news over the last two weeks is that scientists discovered gravitational waves. They were able to hear them for the first time. And I thought, I'm a news junkie. I thought... That's the most significant thing that's happened in the last two weeks? And I called him a nerd. And then I started to think through, what has happened in the last two weeks? Well, we had a Supreme Court justice died. That's serious and big news. Um, there's the elections that are taking place. And so, you know, the emails are floating out there for Hillary and Donald's the greatest ever and somebody else is accused of lying. Everybody's doing their thing. Jeb's dropping out. So that's kind of big news that's happening in our country. The NBA trade deadline happened this past Wednesday. I don't know if you saw that or not. That's big news. Some of you like the, the pop stuff more often. Kate Middleton, the, the princess, she's having twins. Did you know that? That's big news. Big news for her. Probably biggest news in her life. And there's probably a grocery store that says they're aliens, right? That's, that's big news. Lots of news that's happening out there. So I told my friend, I said, you are a nerd. Like, you think it's the biggest thing that's happening. So then I started reading articles about it. And I'm no physicist, but this is big news. <laughs> they've, developed, they've got this device. They've been trying to listen into space to these things. And what happened was that two black holes actually hit each other. And think about this concept for a second. The way they described it was they said that space had a ripple. It bent time and space. This is the last prediction being fulfilled from Albert Einstein when his theory of relativity back in 1915, 1916, about 100 years ago. And he was right. And I just think, that dude was a genius. But what does it mean? And so one guy in the article I read said, this is certainly a Nobel Prize. I was like, okay, that's a big deal then. I know that. What does it mean? And then I started reading some of these articles, and it means they're going to be able to develop a telescope they can look into outer space and see about 99% of the universe that we haven't been able to see. So up until this point, we've only been able to see things with light. Now we're going to be able to see into darkness. Some scientists think that it means we'll be able to see back in time because time can bend and ripple. And One scientist I heard actually said that they believe they're going to see back to the beginning of time, to creation, what they call the Big Bang. And I just laugh and think, God, if we did, what would you show them? But they're going to see things differently. And you think about how we can see things differently now because of technology. Some people have tumors and problems. They don't see, but then there's x-rays, there's MRIs, and we can make the unseen seen. There's some stuff I'm thankful we can't see. I'm thankful we can't see germs. Some of you might be germaphobes. I won't talk about it too much. But if we could see germs, no one would ever stay in a hotel again. They'd all be out of business, okay? If my, my kids after church, if I could see germs, I wouldn't touch them. In fact, they probably wouldn't be allowed in the house. We'd probably hose them down before they came. I've had pneumonia for like three weeks, walking pneumonia. I just think if I could have seen that bacteria flying towards me, you know, blocked it and got it out of there. But how disgusting. I wouldn't want to see it. And then there's some stuff I just take for granted. Like I pick up my cell after church today. I'll probably pick up my cell phone, see if anybody text messaged me. How in the world were they typing on my phone while it was turned off? How did that happen? How come I can pick it up and call somebody and then they're there? There's no string attached or can at the other end. How does it? I can't see, but it's just there. Do you know what the Bible says? 
that no one's ever seen God, John chapter 1. But God made him known through his son, Jesus Christ. There's actually an interesting conversation in John chapter 14. Jesus has been with several of his disciples for a while. And one of them is asking about heaven. He's talking about, I'm preparing a place for you. And then Philip, one of the, other, one of the disciples says, show us the Father, that'll be enough. Oh, Philip. Oh, I just imagine what Jesus' facial expression must have been. Some of you been with me this long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I told you last week, you want to see a love without limits? You've got to look at the life of Jesus Christ. And what he's making seen here in this passage is forgiveness. How do you see forgiveness? Well, he shows us in this passage where the question ultimately becomes for you, for me. How can forgiveness be seen in my life? And what he shows us is that we need to be forgiven. If forgiveness is going to be seen in our lives, we must be forgiven. And that was what was true for this guy in this passage. He had to be forgiven. Try and imagine being this guy. I told you last week in the story that you weren't Jesus, you're the leper. A lot of people didn't like that very much. Let me tell you, in this story, you're not Jesus either. <laughs> Basically, in every story, you're not Jesus. So if you ever read the Bible that way, that's wrong. You're the crippled guy in this story. You have a need, you're unable to fix it, and only Jesus can fix it. So try and imagine being this guy. We don't know a lot about him. You read the first four verses. If you have your Bible, you can glance back at it. Doesn't tell us his name. Doesn't tell us how long he's been crippled. Doesn't tell us whether he's a quadriplegic or he just can't use his legs. We don't know if it happened when it was at birth. We don't know if it happened through an accident. We don't know if it was the judgment of God that came on him while he was sinning. We don't know how it happened. We do know there are at least four guys who really love this guy. Because they realize the most important thing that can happen in this man's life is they get him to Jesus so that his life can be changed. And we don't know if these are his sons, his brothers. Maybe they're just friends that really care about him. But to their own sacrifice, financially, physically, time-wise, they're going to get this guy to Jesus. And so Jesus is teaching in this house in Capernaum, and there's a bunch of people there. And if you read Luke's account, in Luke chapter 5, he tells us there are Pharisees that have come from all over the place, from Galilee, where he was at when he healed the leper, from Judea, from Jerusalem. They're coming from all over the place. And so how do they even know that he's there? Because he snuck into this town, in this house. Well, the customs of the day were that you had to just open your door in the morning. It was part of hospitality. So you just open the door, and someone didn't have to be invited to come in. So if you want to just show up in my house, my door's open. You just come walking in. You don't, you don't, it's not like in the South. Like in the South, I love this. You say to, like, I might see you out in the lobby after church today, and I'll say to you, hey, you should come by my house sometime. But in my heart, I'm thinking, please don't, don't, don't come by. Isn't that real? She knows it's real. The hospitality rules then were you opened your door, and anybody could just show up. And so somebody showed up, and hey, Jesus, Jesus is in here. And then word got out, and then people start coming from all over the place, and the house is packed. And so, again, think about American culture, how this is different. In American culture, we have space rules. And so we don't like to sit right next to each other at church, right? Don't want to say anything because the video venue shut down. <laughs> we don't. If we talk to each other on the lobby, if you start getting all up in my face in the lobby, I think, one, you drank a lot of coffee. Two, why are you up in my space? They didn't have these space rules. That wasn't their culture. And they're packed so tight, you can't work your way through the crowd. These are shoulder to shoulder. These people are sweating on each other. And these dudes show up with their friend, and they can't get through the crowd. And they could say to themselves, well, must not be God. God closed the door. Must be not be God's will. But they don't. They do whatever they need to do to get this guy to Jesus. And so they 
climb up on top of this house. It was probably a one-story home with a flat roof. The roof's there. What you would do is you'd go up on top. It was actually made so that people could walk on it. You'd go up there and do your laundry. You'd go up there and pray. You'd go up there and sleep. You'd go up there to get away. These guys go up there, and they got a plan to do a renovation project on this house. They go up, and they find the spot where they think Jesus is teaching just underneath them, and they start digging. Can you imagine if you're sitting there listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden some dirt falls on your lap? You look up, a stick falls down. Next thing you know, there's a hole. But it's not just a little, it's not just like some light comes through. We're talking skylight renovation, like big enough for a human male to come through. How'd they get this guy up on there? Think about a 200-pound guy. And some houses had staircases on there. Maybe they just walked up the stairs and then started digging. Maybe they had to hoist this guy up there. But we don't know how they did that. And we also don't know how they lower him down. How did they lower him through here? Did they have a pulley system with their belts, you know, that they rigged up? Some smart guys. Maybe they were just holding it as far as they could, and the people underneath were, who's this guy? They're pulling him through. But imagine being the crippled guy, and all you can see is the face of your four friends, a little bit of sky, and the next thing you know, you're face-to-face with Jesus. And then Jesus says, verse 5, Son, and it's not because he's a lot younger than Jesus. That's an endearing term, because what he's about to do is so loving. Son, your sins, plural, your sins are forgiven. Okay. Everyone knows this guy's there to get his legs fixed. It's obvious. But Jesus goes past that need and goes to his greatest need. The need that we all have because we all need our sins forgiven. And this guy has no doubt. He doesn't protest. He'll say, wait a minute, what about my legs? And I really came here for that. And he knows he needs to be forgiven. That's his greatest need is to be forgiven. We all need to be forgiven. I was praying with my oldest daughter the other day. We were just talking about prayer. I was trying to teach her about prayer. And I was trying to teach her that prayer is not just like listing off all the stuff that you want. It's a conversation that you have with God. And we're talking about that. And I said, just like in in any relationship, if there's a problem, sin, then you're going to have a problem in the relationship. There's a barrier there. And I said, you know, if your mom and I get in an argument, then there's a barrier in the relationship. So I have to ask for forgiveness. And so I said, when you talk to God, it's oftentimes great to start off by asking for forgiveness. And I said to her, I said, so I'll, I'll start, I'll just list off some of the sins that I've done today and then uh, ask God to forgive me for those sins. And she looked at me and she was totally serious. And she said, Dad, you sin? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Um, and I, in, my, in my pride, I felt pretty good about that for a moment. And then I said, well, yeah, I do sin. And then she said, like when you yell, shut up. <laughs> I was like, I don't want you listing my sins. I will list my sins. So that moment. The point is that we all sin. And we sin all the time. We sin in lots of ways. This guy has no doubt that he's sinful. The leper last week had no doubt that he didn't just need to be healed. He needed to be cleansed. That's why four times in six verses it says cleanse, not heal, cleanse. Because leprosy was a picture of sin. You were the leper. Guess what? You're the crippled. Unable to fix your problem. You need to be forgiven. And you might have other problems in your life. Like this guy couldn't walk. And those problems may drive you to Jesus, but ultimately the point is to get you to deal with your ultimate problem, your sin problem. The problem for many of us is, well, we know that we're sinners. Like people will easily say, like if I say everybody sinned, all sin falls short of the glory of God, many of you will say, well, no, I'm not perfect. Well, hallelujah, what a confession. (laughs) Did anyone think, when I said I never sinned, that my daughter thought you guys were laughing at me. (laughs) Of course no one's perfect. That's not a confession. Do you realize the magnitude of your sin? 
Do you realize how heavy it is? Do you realize what a big deal it is? Because many of us don't. The Pharisees in this passage, that was one of their problems. It wasn't that they weren't sinful. It wasn't that they didn't need this forgiveness. They didn't realize their own sinfulness because they were what's called self-righteous. They're the kind of people that when hearing Jesus preach the message were thinking to themselves, oh man, I wish someone still would hear this. I know a guy who needs this. That's sin. That's self-righteousness. That's not realizing your need for what's happening. Jesus tells a story about that in Luke chapter 18. You can read it on your own later. It's a made-up story where he's trying to teach a principle. He talks about some guys, and he was talking to self-righteous people. And Luke tells us that at the very beginning. He says, he's talking to these self-righteous people, and he says, there are two guys that went to the temple to worship. One guy was a Pharisee religious leader, a real religious guy. And he says, when he started praying, he said, God, here's all the stuff I do for you, and I tithe, and I serve, and I do this, and I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. The other guy was a tax collector, one of the lowest in society. And that guy was broken about the weightiness of his sin. And he just complained about his brokenness. And Jesus said, one guy went away justified, and it wasn't the Pharisee. And that means forgiven. And many of us, we might not say, at least I'm not like so-and-so. But you think it. I mean, I'm bad, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not... That in itself is sin. And it shows our need for forgiveness. If you don't get your need for forgiveness, then guess what? You don't experience forgiveness. It doesn't mean that forgiveness isn't available. It doesn't mean you didn't pray the right things. It doesn't mean you didn't know the right verses. It doesn't mean that. There's a difference between knowing information and experiencing the truth. Jesus tells a story about that. I alluded to the passage last week where Peter goes to Jesus and he says, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? And he thinks he's like a hot shot. Like seven, I could do seven, Jesus. Do you ever ask yourself the question with that passage, what is it that motivated Peter to go to Jesus? Somebody's obviously repeatedly sinning against him. We don't know if it's his spouse. We don't know if it's his dad. Maybe Peter had dad issues. We don't know if it's one of the other disciples. Maybe one of the other disciples is just annoying, like just bothering him all the time. And then he keeps getting upset, but he forgives the guy seven times. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven times. The point isn't to do a math problem, by the way. It's that you would Continue to forgive like you've been forgiven, as much as needs. Unlimited forgiveness, because that's a love without limits. And everyone needs to be forgiven. So then he tells us a made-up story again. Jesus does. He keeps telling these made-up stories to teach a spiritual truth. The made-up story is about a kingdom, and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And there's a king who's going to call everyone to account, because there is going to be a day of judgment, where every word and every deed is judged. And so he says there's this one guy he calls into account, and Jesus making up a number as he's telling the story. He says he owes 10,000 denarii. That's a ton of money. That's the point of that. More than this guy can repay. And what ends up happening is that the, the king says to him, we're going to sell your wife, we're going to sell your kids, and we're going to sell you to pay the debt. And the guy falls on his face and begs, and he says, just give me more time so I can repay. Which should be an alarm to you if you're reading the Bible. Because the guy can never repay. He's already under a false assumption that his sin isn't that bad, that his debt isn't that big. That he can handle it. And the king goes above and beyond his request and says, no, you're forgiven. You're free. Go. And the guy goes out. He bumps into a guy who owes him 100 denarii, which is still a lot of money. It's not five bucks. But it's nothing compared to 10,000 denarii. And he grabs the guy by the collar, throws him in jail, and says he's got to stay there until he pays back his debt. And you hear the story or read the story and think to yourself, how could this guy be such a jerk? Do you know why? Because he hasn't been forgiven. 
Oh, he, wait a minute, but his debt was canceled. Yeah, Jesus is taking care of it. Jesus paid it all, just like our worship leaders, was, we were singing that song. Jesus paid it all, all to him. I, oh, but do you don't get it. If you don't realize how much you owe, how can you be forgiven? The problem for this guy was he never realized how big his debt was. So you can read the rest of the story to see what happens. The guy was never forgiven. Forgiveness was offered. He couldn't receive it because he didn't understand the magnitude of his sin. Do you understand the magnitude of your sin? Because I think a lot of times because of great, we abuse grace, we, abuse, we disrespect what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we make it like it's no big deal, it's covered, it's, you know, we're under grace. And do you look at what the Bible says. Just start reading what the scriptures actually say. Because it doesn't matter what I say. What do the scriptures say? In Deuteronomy chapter 25, it talks about dishonesty. And it says this, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, I believe we have the verse, we'll put it on the screen. It says, for the Lord your God desires, or detests anyone who does these things, dishonest things. Dishonest scales is what he's talking about in business deals. Anyone who deals dishonestly, he detests. Well, that's the Old Testament, so maybe that doesn't count. Go to the New Testament. See what the New Testament says, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, it talks about all the people that aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to be in heaven. And Paul says this, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, who are the wicked? Do not be deceived. Here's who they are. Neither the sexually immoral. Have you ever lusted? Jesus talks about that. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. And you keep reading, and you know what our tendency is? Whichever ones we don't struggle with, we point those, man, at least I'm not like, that's Luke 18, by the way. Maybe you don't struggle with same-sex attraction. Some of you, I know, do you? You go, well, at least I'm not homosexual. I mean, those people aren't going to heaven. Are you? Did you read the list? Do you know what an idolater is? If you don't know what idolatry is, here's what idolatry is. It's worshiping creation. Creation's anything that's not God. He's the creator. Everything else is creation. So have you ever put something else in the place of God? A job? That's going to bring me satisfaction. A goal in life? Another person? Some aspiration? Something you have? That's idolatry. We're all guilty. And it's not just this passage. You go, oh, you just grab this one passage. Read Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 tell us this stuff's obvious. Like we know in our spirit, God's written his law in our hearts. We know when we're sinning, we justify it and we rationalize it. We say it's not as bad as somebody else or maybe we didn't understand the passage and we come up with all these different ways. Galatians says this in Galatians chapter 5, and verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. It starts to list a bunch of them. It goes a bigger list than Corinthians. Idolatry. Seen that one before. Witchcraft. Oh, God, I don't do that. Hatred. Oh. Discord. Ever been in a fight? Jealousy. Nah, not you. Fits of rage. Maybe when you're real little. Selfish ambition. Okay, that's a little closer to home. Dissensions. Ever caused a fight? Factions. Ever made division take place? Envy. Drunkenness. Orgies. This list isn't exhaustive. This is the, you get the idea. And then he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But can I tell you something? Sin never sent anyone to hell. Sin doesn't send you to hell. Because heaven's filled with sinners. It's unforgiven sin that sends you to hell. God sends people there because their sins haven't been washed clean because they haven't accepted that Jesus offered to switch places with them, that he came to earth so that when you leave earth, you go to heaven. He became sin who knew no sin. He took on the wrath of God for you. But if you didn't really need it that bad, then guess what? You're like the guy in Matthew chapter 18. 
It's offered to you. It's given out there to you. You might know the verses. You might claim that it's true in your head. But if you don't realize the magnitude of your sin, how can you be forgiven? So you know how you're forgiven? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, what does it mean to confess? It doesn't just mean to say them. It doesn't mean just to list them like a grocery list. It means you see them like God sees them. He hates them. A lot of us, we love, like Charles Spurgeon, we love our leprosy. We love our sin. We just want to go to heaven someday. Oh, you hate your sin. You, turn, you realize it's what's a barrier between you and God. And you confess it, and guess what? He was faithful. Not, be, not you start being faithful now. He was faithful. It's his faithfulness. He was just. God was just in pouring out his wrath on his son on the cross. Forgiveness couldn't just happen. Something had to, somebody had to pay. He had to pay. But then he will cleanse you, purify you, and you'd be forgiven. But it's not just so you'd be forgiven. That's not how we put it on display. You have to be forgiven. That's the first step. But you have to live forgiven. If you're going to put forgiveness on display in your life, you have to not only be forgiven. If you haven't been forgiven, you can't skip that point. You've got to get that. But you must also live forgiven. And look at what we see next. You know what we see next in this passage? After Jesus says in that verse 5, your sin, son, your sins, plural, all of them, are forgiven. You know what happens next? Nothing. <laughs> There's no action. It's what these guys are thinking. Look at it with me. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's talking about forgiving sins. He's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. They're just wrong about Jesus, and they're wrong about their own need. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, he starts talking to them about what they're thinking. I don't know what was going on in their minds after that, but it couldn't have been good. Why are you thinking these things? Verse 9. Which is easier, and then notice it says, not easier to do, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, first of all, humanly speaking, neither one are possible. So it's not about what's easier, for, is it easier for me to heal someone, or easier, you can't do either one, okay? Only God can forgive them, and you can't heal them. And God made forgiveness possible. It didn't look real easy. When he went to the cross, he said, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he can just speak things into existence, but he doesn't talk about what's easier to do. What's easier to say? And so just think about that question. What's easier to say? Is it easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say to someone, get up and walk? And it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can tell whether it happened or not. You can't, there's no evidence. If you say to someone, take up your mat and walk, and they don't take up their mat and walk, guess what? There's evidence. So it's easier to say the one because you can see it. But Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, I'm showing you that I can forgive you, and go home. Verse 12, he got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, even the Pharisees, everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. What have they never seen? Because when you study the Bible, you've got to ask the Bible questions. What is it, when it says there that they've never seen anything like this, is he talking about a healing like this? We well, can't be talking about a healing, right? Because we already know. You read the context, you go back, verse 34 Chapter 1, Jesus has already done miracles like this. People from all over the town were coming, and in this very house, he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and it was at this very house's door where people were coming. So this is some of the same people. 
And so if everyone's amazed and they've never seen anything like this, it can't be the miracle of the guy walking. That's not what's being talked about. Or maybe it's about how he's defeated the Pharisees here because he's got an authority they don't understand and he's reading their minds. And, but he's already talked about that in chapter 1 and verse 22. What is it that they've never seen in verse 12? They've never seen forgiveness. You know what they're used to seeing? They're used to seeing a condemning religion. That's what the Pharisees do. And sometimes it's said, and sometimes it's just, you just know. You just don't measure up. You're not good enough. And they'll teach the Bible, and they use verses from the Bible, and even verses that talk about forgiveness. But you know you're never quite good enough for those, those things to be true about you. They've never seen anything like this. It's called grace. They've never seen anything like this where you can visually see forgiveness. They've never seen anything like this with Jesus. You know why he came? He came to take away our sins. What the angels say to, to Joseph in the Christmas story when Jesus is about to be born, he says, you're going to give them the name Jesus because he's going to take away their sins. What does John the Baptist say in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Acts chapter 4, and verse 12, there's no other name by which you would be saved that can deal with your sins other than the name of Jesus Christ. And what he does here with this man, he says in verse 5, your sins, plural, all of them, are forgiven. What do you think that was like for this guy? He wasn't like the leper in the sense that he had to have all the social isolation that we talked about last week. But everybody believed then that if you had a disability, it was tied to your sinfulness. Now we know sometimes that's not true. We know in Job it wasn't true. We know in John chapter 9, when there's the guy that's there that Jesus is going to heal. The disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus says, neither. That's not the point in this situation. But Jesus seems to imply in this situation that it is the point. That his healing is tied to his forgiveness. That it was because of his sin. This guy was aware of his sin. And what did it mean for him? We don't know if he was rich or if he was poor. He could have been just by his family, wealthy. But we know he'd be relegated if he wasn't, just being a beggar. That's shame. We know that he can't take care of his family, he can't provide for them, unless he's independently wealthy. That's guilt. We know that he would believe, just like everyone else, that the reason why he was here was because of his sin. And when Jesus said, your sins, back in verse 5, plural, sins, I wonder if that guy's specific sins went through his mind. Because Jesus knows our specific sins. Like he tells the woman at the well, hey, you've been with five guys, the guy you're with right now, that's not your husband. Psalm 139, he knows our thoughts before we think them. We see him do it here in this passage. He knows if this guy has ever stolen money. He knows that this guy has been a drunkard. He knows that this guy has ever lusted. He knows when he's been jealous. He knows his envy. He knows his idolatry. He knows his sexual morality. He knows all the stuff that's in those lists. He says, your sins, all of them, are forgiven. What do you think that was like for that guy? You know in verse 5, the word means for forgiven? It means to send away. When this guy gets up and walks out, it's a picture that he's now free. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed his transgressions from him. He's free. Are you? Because a lot of us, we know the verses. And maybe you know the stories and some of the stories I've mentioned today. Maybe you know Luke chapter 7 where there's the woman with a reputation. She's forgiven much, so she loves much. John chapter 8, the woman's told, you're forgiven, but just stop sinning. You know all that, but is it true for you? Are you free? Because here's what happens to a lot of us. A lot of us, we know the verses, we've prayed the prayer, we've walked the aisle, we've done the right stuff, we can answer the questions. If I handed out a quiz and said, you know, tell me how you know you're forgiven, First John 1, 9, if I confess my sins, you know the verses, but is it true in your heart? Because what really happens for many people is that we think it's not true for us. 
And so we know the verses, and maybe we've walked the aisle, we prayed the prayer, but we still carry around our stuff, and it's like we're in bondage. It's like there's chains on us that still hold us down. I want to give you a picture of this today, and so I want to ask one of our attenders, one of our college students, David, if you come up here. David, I, <clears throat> I want to just, I'm going to say some things that might not be true about you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you just to pretend to be the average churchgoer, okay? Got it? You're in character now? You got the vibe? Got to smile a little bit. You look a, pretend you're a greeter. You got the greeter, you're down there? All right. And so David knows the verses. He knows 1 John 1, 9. He knows Psalm 103. He knows the passage we're talking about today. He prayed the prayer, trusted Jesus as a Savior. If you ask some questions, he'd know. But we'll just say that some stuff was done to David when he was younger. And so he's got shame. Or maybe some stuff wasn't done. Maybe, maybe stuff was done to other people and he feels guilty that it wasn't him. And so there's guilt or anger. And there's bondage in his life. He might as well take these chains and hook them onto a big boulder and carry them around. But you know what we do is instead of walking around with the hook for our chains and stuff, we try to dress them up as church people. And so we'll take, you know, a sport coat and throw it on because he's got to be nice here. It's church day, and so we're trying to hide the, hide the chains that we have and quote the verses. And maybe, you're, maybe he's, if he was a lady, we'd put a little makeup on him up here. No makeup on him. I can see him real close. These lights are bright. Get the hair just right. He's got the ponytail, sporting the ponytail. So he's cool. We got that down. So you want to ask him that? And you may do different things, but you're trying to cover them up. Trying to pretend like it's not really there. Trying to make everybody else think, you don't really have the shame. You don't really have the guilt. I mean, you know the verses. You can quote the verses. But you're carrying this stuff around, and guess what? It becomes painful. It becomes heavy after a while. And what the passage says is that when Jesus says, you are forgiven, your sins, plural, all of them are forgiven, he's saying the same God that can read the minds of those Pharisees can see past your sport coat, see past the hair, see past the makeup, and he knows what's really there. And he sends it away. And so what he's doing when he sends it away, he's not just taking it off, he's, he's getting rid of it. Like it's, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, he removes all of your transgressions. Which means like the guy in this passage, you're free. David, you're free. You can go back to your seat. Thank you, David. So are you free? There's an interesting thing that happens here. Not only does this guy get up and walk... But think about that. Jesus said to the guy, take up your mat and go home. Walk. He does it, which also requires faith. It's an act of faith that you see him do. Because he could have thought to himself, oh, maybe later, Jesus, when there aren't so many people around, we'll give it a try. He could have humiliated himself. He could have fallen on his face. The only way that this can actually happen is if Jesus empowers him to do this. And that's what Jesus does. Not only does he say, your sins are forgiven, but he gives you the a power and empowerment to actually live forgiven. And so he tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that, that you're not a slave, that you're a son. He adopts us into the family. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit, verse 13. And then verse 18, it says, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave lives in you. Those of you who've been forgiven, you don't have the power to live forgiven. And Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. You don't think he can deal with your shame and your guilt and your sin and your anger and your jealousy and your lust and your pride and your deception and that stuff that he detests? It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than I could ever ask or imagine according to his power that's at work in you. 
and the church throughout in the name of Jesus Christ. He empowers you to be free. And so you see that in people that are truly forgiven, that they live out their forgiveness. There's one woman, her husband came, I remember he was the same college I did, he came and shared his testimony in, in chapel when I was a student there. Her name is Joy. And uh, Joy grew up, and she did have a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. She was sexually abused when she was a little girl, uh, starting at about the age of three until she was about eight. Her mom died when she was seven. It was multiple family members that did this to her, which caused incredible shame in her life. And by the time she was 15, she wanted to take her own life. By the time she was 18, she got married. By the time she was 22, she had two kids and deep, dark depression. And they weren't a Christian family, the husband nor the wife. And she decided she was out. She was done. She couldn't deal with it anymore. And so she told her husband one day, she left him with the two kids. She was out. And Ian, the, the husband, said that uh, that sent him down. Like he was a professional musician playing with a bunch of popular bands and all this stuff. And he quit that and just started teaching music lessons, spending time with his kids. And he hit bottom. And he called upon the name of Jesus Christ to save him. He met a Christian gal, started dating her. His Christian friends encouraged him, you should remarry, get a new start. And then he believed that God wanted him to reconcile with his wife. Even though she was lost, and she was out ruining her life even more at this point. And so he broke up with that Christian gal and started to write his wife letters. For the next several years, he wrote her letters. In the meantime, Joy, she was out getting involved in more, more physical abuse was taking place in her life. Um, unhealthy things that she kept doing, got involved in drugs, uh, some of the occult that she was involved in even. And, but one day, she finally hit bottom. And she cried out to God and started saying how angry she was with him for all the pain that he caused in her life and asking about her mom and where were you and if you're really there. And while she was doing that, God whispered to her heart, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And she said, I didn't know who said it. So I went and I started looking for a Bible. Someone had given her a Bible a long time before. And she started reading in the Bible to find out who said these words. And she came to John chapter 14. And John chapter 14, it's Jesus who's speaking. Red letters if you have one of those Bibles. And Jesus says, I am the way. And she said, in that moment, I knew that he was the way to go. And the way I was going was ruining my life, that he was the way to go. And I am the truth. And she thought, then I can trust him. If he's the truth, then I can believe him. And here she was. She was suicidal. And he says, I am the life. And he's offering life, and she's wanting death. And she kept reading the Bible, and she ended up realizing that God is love. And she thought, well, then I want him because he can give me real love. I want to experience real love, love without limits. And she surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. And she began to ask God, what do you want me to do now? And again, he whispered in her heart, go back to your husband. And Ian took her back. Now, what could happen for Joy is she could... Know the true things about God, but carry the chains around at church. But wear nice clothes and smile and, and be the person that everybody expects you to be, but still have the shame and still have the guilt and not have the freedom. But Joy knows that there's an empowerment of being forgiven that you can then live forgiven where you're free from that. And so if you go and you get the chains again, you put the chains back on, why are you discrediting what Jesus did on the cross? Why are you thinking to yourself, I must pay? How guilty do you have to feel? When will it be okay? Why aren't you able to experience forgiveness? And the reality is either you don't understand the magnitude of your sin or you don't understand the graciousness and the unlimited love that Jesus showed. Ultimately, it's in Mark chapter 15 when he died on the cross for you. See, it's one thing to be able to look back into the past, like these gravitational waves and develop in the telescope. It's something else to be able to change the past. 
Old things pass away. New things come. You are a new creation. Forgetting what is behind, pursuing what is ahead, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, pursuing him so you can know that righteousness. And that righteousness can be yours, but you have to be forgiven. Have you been forgiven? And if so, do you have the power to live forgiven? If you've truly been forgiven, then you do because you've been given the Holy Spirit. Some of you need to be forgiven today. Confess your sins. Call upon him. He will cleanse you. And he can deal with the shame and the guilt and the anger and the jealousy and all the sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for caring for us even when we're in pain. Like this man who couldn't walk. Thank you for seeing the most physically and emotionally and spiritually painful things that have happened in our lives. And thank you for taking that on you on the cross. And while it's not easy, I'm sure it wasn't easy for this guy to get up. It's not easy to place our faith in you. It's not easy to trust that you can do these things. God, give us the power to trust you. Give us the healing and the cleansing that we so need. God, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know your son, Jesus is their savior, that in this very moment right now, they would call upon your son, Jesus Christ. And if they won't, I pray that you, even if you have to give them a dark, deep depression, you drive them to their knees to the point where they would trust your son, Jesus. So they can experience your love and then know real freedom. I pray for no fake peace. And God, I pray for those of us who know you, but we've got things to confess. I pray even right now that we would confess our sins to you, that you would you know, we know you'll forgive us, that we would receive that forgiveness, that we would be forgiven, that we would live the forgiven life. And then we'd pass it on, we'd forgive others. In Jesus' name I pray.